The scripture lesson comes to us today from Luke's Gospel. I'll be reading from chapter 21, verse 5 through 19. A bit of a lengthier text and perhaps your average selection, so please bear with me, listen closely, and see if the Spirit just might be speaking to us. Some people were talking about the temple and how it was decorated with beautiful stones and ornaments dedicated to God. Jesus said, As for the things you are admiring, the time is coming when not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. They asked him, Teacher, when will these things happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to happen? Jesus said, Watch out, so that you are not deceived. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the one, and it's time. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. These things must happen first, but the end won't happen immediately. And Jesus said to them, nations and kingdoms will fight against each other, There will be great earthquakes and wide-scale food shortages and epidemics. There will also be terrifying sights and great signs in the sky. But before all this occurs, they will take you into custody and harass you because of your faith. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will provide you with an opportunity to testify. Make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to counter or contradict. You will be betrayed by your parents, brothers and sisters, relatives, and friends. They will execute some of you. Everyone will hate you because of my name. Still, not a hair on your heads will be lost. By holding fast, you will gain your lives. Here ends this reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I must have been about a junior in high school when I decided to do something that was way outside my normal routine and most assuredly way outside my comfort zone. I went rappelling. Have anybody ever done that? I did it on purpose. If I had known then what I know now about my youth director's inattention to detail, I would still be upset with my parents today for letting me go repelling with that youth director, even though I begged them at the time to let me go with him. Somehow, to my teenage mind, it sounded like a really good and fun idea to entrust my 16-year-old life to this 24-year-old rookie youth director. The truth is, He was a marvelous youth director, but the truth also was that he was a terrible repelling instructor. (laughs) After a lengthy, laborious climb up the face of some nearly completely vertical rock bluffs, all that was left to do was put on the gear that then would allow us to descend and what I was envisioning would be an amazingly fun time of leaping and bounding down the face of these cliffs. Now, I do not remember all of the gear that we put on. 
It seems like there were several pieces that we swapped out once we were done climbing that before we started descending, and, and I can't remember what all of these pieces were, but I clearly remember putting on what seemed like a rather thick leather belt right around my middle that had these metal loops, and through these metal loops, the rope was supposed to run through the center of these around my middle. And so the idea was that the rope would basically wrap around my body through these metal guides lying there on, the, on this leather belt. And with one hand in front of me, I could basically control the speed of my descent, either by holding the rope behind me to go faster so that it was more of a straight line, or wrapping it around to slow down or even completely stop. That was the idea in theory. So, it was the belt, and it was the guides that were the important pieces of equipment. Now, after my youth director had helped me get geared up and demonstrated briefly how I was supposed to do all of this, I backed up to the edge of this bluff, and after a mutual nod and a brief moment of eye contact with my youth director, I leapt backwards off the face of this bluff, and I'll admit it, my first leap was a bit cautious. I had successfully used the rope the way I had been shown, and sure enough, it brought me to a stop, and sure enough, my feet were planted against the face of that rocky bluff, and my face and body aimed skyward. Well, all was well so far. My second leap was a bit more bold, and certainly bigger, and it was just as successful as my first, so with a swelling sense of confidence and a desire to impress, I bent my knees fully this time before shoving off with all of my 16-year-old might with my legs off of the rock, and this time something was different. When the momentum of my initial surge waned and my body began to pull back closer to the face of that bluff, the rope made a violent popping sound and shifted suddenly, and the rope, you see, slid underneath my belt, and my hip was exposed directly to the rope as it slid past, going no telling how quickly. So now this rope, you see, was in direct contact with my skin as I was trying to burn it to a halt. It turns out there was no equipment malfunction. It turns out that we missed one of the metal guides on the belt. Think of it as a metal belt loop on a pair of jeans. And without the rope and the guide, the rope had forced its way under the belt as it wrapped its way around me. And I cannot explain to you accurately with words the severity I felt of this burning sensation. This equipment uh, misuse put me in a terrible predicament. Here I was, only halfway down the bluff at this point, and obviously I could not let go of the rope. It was the one non-negotiable. I was not experienced enough to stop midway down the bluff, or courageous enough, whichever way you look at it, and support myself, taking myself free of the means that would have held me from falling, and fix this mess. And so I did the only thing I could think of, and basically I inched myself on down the face of the bluff as slowly as I could so that at least the rope burn would be less severe. I managed to make it down, but it was incredibly painful as you can imagine, and today I still bear the scars of this ill-advised adventure on my right hip. I have mostly forgiven my youth director for missing the guide on my right hip, and perhaps not surprisingly, I have never been once again on another repelling trip, and don't plan to in the foreseeable future. Now, 
when I was in that incredibly painful bind on the face of that cliff, there was really only one non-negotiable factor for me at that point. I was not willing to let go of that rope no matter how badly I was hurting. Why? (laughs) Well, because it seemed the alternative would hurt even worse. Because a fall would hurt much worse than a rope burn, and frankly, I might not have survived the fall on these rocks from that height. The scripture lesson from today's gospel lesson in Luke sets up a similar scenario. But instead of it being about repelling, it's about one's religious practices. Jesus is making some very bold statements about the religious practices of the people of his day, and he's predicting the destruction of the temple, not just the physical building people, but more than that. It was symbolic of a destruction of a way of practicing religion that he was predicting the destruction of. This temple, however, was the hub of religious activity, yet it was so much more. This temple was the place where babies were blessed, the place where lessons were taught from the scriptures, the place where people gathered for worship. Not even one stone, he said, will be left upon another, Jesus said, while staring at the place that had become so sacred for so many And to make matters more complicated, Jesus is predicting great hardship for those who would hold fast to his teaching. Wars, rumors of wars, insults, injuries, all of these things would happen so quickly and so severely that it would make it tempting to let go of it all, kind of like I felt about that rope for a while on my repelling trip. Religion had come loose from some of the guides, if you will, to use that same metaphor and was now as painful in its presently practiced form as a rope burning into the tender flesh of exposed skin on a person rappelling down from a bluff at full speed. And to make matters even more complicated, Jesus was outright saying that if his would-be disciples would dare to practice religion the way he was trying to teach them to practice religion, people would hate them, insult them, try to harm them. It's safe to say there was friction between the practice of their religion and the way Jesus said it should be done. And he summed up the situation for them when he said, Everyone will hate you because of my name. Still not a hair on your heads will be lost. But by holding fast, you'll actually gain your lives. Hold on. Hold on? Hold on! Jesus was saying, But to what? When all hell breaks loose, when religion comes off the rails and slips under our belt as we are flying backwards down the bluff of life itself, what is the non-negotiable? To what shall we cling that can keep us from dashing ourselves against the rocks and completely losing it? What is the lifeline, the life rope, if you will? I mean, if we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing of Christianity, preacher, it would be really nice if you would just spoon feed it to us. Okay. I'm so glad you asked. I don't think it's possible to answer this question without taking note of what happened in the four verses we didn't read right before the verses we did read today. Jesus 
and his audience, where we picked it up in verse 5, are talking about the temple. The same one, Jesus is saying, will be demolished, but he's not just talking about a building. He's talking about a religious system, and he's saying it because this religious system, according to Jesus, had lost its way. It had let go of the one main thing. It had slipped off of the metal belt loops, if you will. Listen to the first four verses of the same chapter, the verses right before the ones we read. Looking up, Jesus saw rich people throwing their gifts into the collection box for the temple treasury. He also saw, do you remember this? A poor widow throw in two small copper coins and a penny. And he said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than them all. All of them are giving out of their spare change, but she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had to live on. Okay, so here's the deal. Jesus is disgusted with the dominant religious culture and the practices of his day because the very system that was founded to care for the poor and the marginalized has fallen away from its calling to care for the poor and the marginalized altogether. And now the religious elite, the wealthy, the powerful, they are calling the shots and everything has been shifted. The religious system had become intertwined with the political system and it was actually the religious crowd that were using both systems to their own advantage, to the detriment of the poor and the marginalized. So it was standing here at the temple, watching the widow give her last coin that sparked this hellfire and brimstone speech from Jesus. So do you want to know what the non-negotiable main thing, the centerpiece, at least here from this teaching of the faith, is for those who seek to follow the ways of the one called Jesus of Nazareth? I do, don't you? Well, according to this scripture lesson, as Christians... We must leave room at the very centerpiece of our faith to be taught, to be tutored in faithfulness by those who have zero power, by those who have zero position, and by those who have no prestige of any kind. The lost is found, and the found is lost in the way of Jesus. Those with wealth to burn are not to be the voices of authority for those followers of Jesus, but those who have been burned by the wealthy are to lead us. Those whom the world rejects should be accepted not just as members in the church, but as leaders in the church, and yet this is not the way we do things. But this is precisely the practice that keeps our religion inside the guideposts and keeps it on track so that we are not holding on to something false and destructive. You see, any practice of religion, of the Christian religion in particular, that does not embrace the outcast, lift up the fallen, bind up the wounded, and seek to be led by the least, the last, and the underdog is not the religion Jesus had in mind. It has come off the guides. It has come off the rails. And the truth is, much of Christianity has come off of the guides, dear ones. 
In many circles, particularly evangelical religious circles, the practice of Christianity has basically become a religion married to a hard right-wing brand of politics that seeks to privatize the faith and run basically a for-profit religion that exists primarily for those seeking self-improvement, self-advancement, and a place to build community to cheer one another on as they bend the faith and their world to their own advantages. And all of this happens without a single place at the table given to the outsider, to the foreigner, to the immigrant, to the voiceless, to the poor, to the LGBTQ beloved, to the single mother, to the person of color, or anyone outside of the most dominant, most influential groups among us. And unfortunately, this is the brand of Christianity that our wider society now perceives as, quote, mainstream Christianity. This, however, for anyone who is paying attention, is not mainstream or even close to the Jesus stream at all. And I, for one, am not ready to concede the Christian faith, the faith founded by a brown-skinned, nomadic, homeless immigrant son born to an unwed mother and carpenter father on the run from a rich, powerful political ruler who spent most of his ministry hanging out with people that so-called mainstream Christianity finds invisible. There. (laughs) I feel better. I am not ready to concede the faith to this type of perversion. Are you? Are you? I can't hear you. I'm not willing to disconnect the faith of our parents and grandparents and ancestors from the faith that we live out today. Are you willing to have that disconnected sense of lack of history Anyone who practices a version of the Christian faith that is disconnected from those on the margins of society has taken a detour from the humble path charted by our founder and needs to re-navigate their course. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, theologian, and one whale of an anti-Nazi activist whose writings on Christianity's role in the face of these types of perversions has made a lasting impact on me. The Nazis, you see, were carrying out genocide and so-called ethnic cleansing, and they were using the Christian faith to justify it. Bonhoeffer knew a great deal about resisting religious and political forces that, in his estimation, were harmful to the faith, and not only to the faith, but to society at large. Eventually, Bonhoeffer would be hanged, executed, for his courageous resistance to the Nazi regime. But even in the face of tremendous danger, and in fact, from prison, listen to these words he penned so many years ago now that ring louder and louder in my ears these days. He said, the church is the church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, but helping and serving. And the church must tell people of every calling what it means to live for Christ and to exist for others. What does it mean to live for Christ? What is the main thing? What is the life rope to which we must cling as people of faith as our bodies go rappelling down the bluff of life itself? What is the non-negotiable of faithfulness for Christians? Bonhoeffer said to live for Christ and to exist for others. 
I think it mirrors exactly what Jesus was teaching us here in this passage of Scripture in Luke's Gospel. When he stood in the shadows of the giant stones at the temple in disgust that day that we read about a moment ago, to live for Christ is to exist for others and to do it selflessly, to do it daringly, to do it uncomfortably, unswervingly, and even sacrificially. So, my dear ones, my encouragement to you and to myself, let us hold fast to our roots. Let us not let go of the truth that the widow's last mite is still worth more than the loose change in the rich person's pockets. Hold on, my companions, to the truth that those deemed unworthy by the dominant, quote, mainstream religious and political culture all around us actually have a great deal to teach us in this family of faith and that we should listen to those who have something to offer who are on the outside looking in. And here in this family of faith, it is my prayer that we'll be looking to those to lead us who are outsiders elsewhere, that we'll be looking to the wisdom of children learning by witnessing the sacred love of LGBTQ couples, that we'll be blessed by the incredible riches of those with absolutely nothing in the bank, and that we'll be leaning into the words of those who might not even speak English. Listen and learn and marvel at the faith of those on the margins and see how their strength has not faltered even in the face of oppression. Those with position, with prestige, with privilege, must step aside and work to lift up those who have been held down by the self-seeking, self-promoting members of society and even of the church so that those who have been excluded are now not only included but are given the permission to lead us as this beloved community. Hold on to this practice, dear ones. For just when you think you might be saving someone else's life, you might end up realizing it was your own life that was actually saved. And in doing so, just as Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, you will gain your very lives. Thanks be to God for this incredible universal truth that is the centerpiece, the very lifeline of the Christian faith. Amen.